Älskar du den här podden? Stötta den genom IKAs nya supporterfunktion. Det är helt upp till dig hur mycket du vill bidra med och det finns ingen bindningstid. Klicka på länken i poddbeskrivningen för att visa din uppskattning och stötta podden. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the 52nd episode of the Swedish outdoor podcast Husky. This is also my second all-English episode, and if you are a triathlete, chances are pretty big that you've heard of Chris Macca McCormack. Some of his merits include breaking the 8-hour barrier over the Ironman distance four times, the only man to break the barrier more than twice. He won the Hawaii Ironman two times. In fact, he has won 76% of all the races during his professional career, and that's more than 220 wins. This interview is recorded at Tanyapura, Thailand, in cooperation with Swedish tour operator Apollo. If you listen to this episode using the podcast app Acast, you will see pictures and links pop up together with interview. So you will get much more information about the people and places Maka is mentioning. Get more information about this episode on huskypodcast.com or follow me on Facebook or Instagram. More English interviews are on the way. It's an honor here at Tanyapura with uh, Chris Maka. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Hope you're enjoying Tanyapura. Yeah, away from home. <laughs> it's 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 amazing. We're having a blast, actually. It's, yeah, it's really good. Easy to eat, good, and easy to work it all out. Do people know where Tanyapura is? They know where you are <laughs> <laughs> in Thailand. But it's <laughs> no, it's a good spot. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Sydney, Australia, in the southern suburbs of Sydney, in Cronulla, about forty minutes from the city centre. Mm -hmm. Very very nice place to grow up. It's sort of the last. It's considered the last village mm -hmm. um, of Sydney, you know. So it's a beach, a beach community, and uh, kind of a small town mentality instead of a big city. Or I think Australia is a small town mentality. We only have Could twenty. Be right. Yeah, Could <laughs> be right. but uh, <laughs> for Sydney's the big smoke in Australian terms, I guess the biggest city, and uh, where you know one of the the last beaches of Sydney. I, I think it's anything south of that. We have the biggest national park in the world in in Australia. And uh, so we're sort of this little island, we call it, and uh, a lot of people from, from Australia know the Shire, which is what the area I grew oh, really? up in. Yeah, we're, we're surrounded by two big river systems and obviously the ocean to the east and uh, 
and so it's like a moat. We say it's a, an island around the Shire, and that's where I grew up. Did that mean a lot to you? I mean, um, uh, being close to the elements, being close to nature and, and the water and everything, did it, did it play a large role in your life? Yeah, I don't think, as, as Aussies, we all live on the coast, relatively speaking, I guess. So uh, I don't think you realise how lucky you are when you grow up until you actually have grown up and you're able to reflect on other places you've been. But it, it really is a beautiful part of the world. And, and for a young kid, you have access to so much. You know, I, I was swimming in the beach very, very young. You, you know, we were outdoorsy. You know, sport was something everybody did without it feeling like you did sport. You just... Always on the move? Yeah, you're always on the move. You're participating in things and you're, you're doing things. So it was... Uh, you know, you're very, very active. It's an, definitely an active lifestyle. So that was what your childhood childhood was like, active and outdoors. Yeah, it was. It was everything centered around the beach. You know, everything for us. Uh, you know, we lived pretty much on the beach. So my brothers and I would uh, we'd surf every single morning before school. We'd surf after school, and uh, you know, on the weekends, our friends and I would all surf. And then as school got more intense. Um, there was a lot of expectation from my family side to, to knuckle down and study a lot harder than just playing on the beach. So you sort of have that fun mentality drilled in you. I think Australians by nature are very laid back and, and quite fun individuals. And uh, I think that comes from the, that beach culture. What did you want to become when you grew up? I wanted to be a professional surfer, yeah. Australia at that point in the, in the mid-80s, you know, when I was uh, you know, 12 years of age entering high school, we were dominating the world surfing scene and, and uh, there was a very famous surfer called Marco Colupo who went on to win a world title, you know, late. One of the, I think he's the oldest ever world champion, but he was a, a guru, you know, and he, he was a goofy footer, which means he had his left foot backward, back and his right foot forward and he grew up in my, on my beach. I used to watch him surf every day. So I was like, mate, that's Oki, I can do that. And I used to compete against him when I was young, he, you know, in the same club, but... I thought that's going to be the coolest life in the world. You travel around, surf good waves, all the girls love you. It's I want to be that. But uh, so that was really my aim. I never had any aspirations um, corporately. I didn't know if I wanted to be a lawyer or a fireman. I never really had that. Um, I think the only uh, the only thing I do remember telling my parents I wouldn't mind being a pilot because I wanted to fly. But other than that, it was always centered around doing something in surfing or sport. So your role, role model is kind of centred around surfing and, and uh, athletes? Or? Yeah, well, Australia at the time, we, we didn't, you know, we really embraced our sports. You know, sport in Australia, to understand uh, Australian psyche, you need to understand how important sport is in, its, in our history. We're only a young nation, um, very, very heavily tied to the UK, and, you know, obviously we went through the wars, but it was, it was our sporting prowess that we, we compared ourselves to the UK cricket initially, and... Uh, Never you know. wanted to become a cricket player. No, not for me. No, no. My dad didn't have the patience to sit there all day. But you know, I grew up with my father talking to me about the great cricketers and the great swimmers and the great, you know, because we used to win a couple of medals. But it was very, we're a very small nation. So those are, you know, people like Dawn Fraser. She won Olympic gold medals in swimming in the in the fifties. I know it. You know, Herb Elliott won in the sixties. I know him. They they're iconic people in our in our history. There is an interwined into our political history as, as, as anybody else and uh, so sport the fundamentals of sport are ingrained into us so you know I think every kid in Australia wants to do something with sport but there just wasn't a professional sport you could do sure you were famous amongst Australians but it didn't pay the bill so for the for someone like my father he's like yeah it's nice to have a dream of being a professional athlete but unlike America it's non-sustainable within our country so I, um, I think every kid 
wanted to emulate those heroes that were on television because when you're a kid you're not looking at the sustainability of it you're looking at that that is so nice that and cool. yeah that moment and uh and that's how i was uh what's your first memories of triathlon like seeing it when how did you get in contact with it my first ever memory i remember vividly i was 12 years of age i i saw anything that had to do with um with Hawaii because I surfed I used to turn on, on the television and, and Australia had four TV stations back then it's pretty you know and so you, did, you, you were very limited in what you could watch on television we had two in Sweden oh well, there you go yeah. we had two more than you well one was government run the other three were commercial um, and one of them used to always have cricket so really we only had two as well and uh, there was a show called the Wide World of Sports which used to be every weekend and wrap up all the sports around the world and it was a three hour show and this one day this triathlon came on in Hawaii, the Hawaiian Ironman, 1987, I was 12 years of age, was I 12, yeah, and I was watching it enthralled with my mother, going, wow, you know, I'm going to do that one day, you know, and I, I, my brother, my older, I'm the middle child, I have an older brother and a younger brother, I remember my older brother laughing, saying, you, you'll never be able to do that, I'm like, I will so, we had a big fight over it, and, and my younger brother, him ganged up on me, and And I, uh, I, that was the first time I ever saw a triathlon, and I and I remember it vividly. I, I never realised how pivotal that moment would be in my life because at that point it was just an event on TV. But I thought that's cool. One day I'm going to do Hawaii. But triathlon didn't exist really at that point. You know, was, it was just the Kona. It was the... yeah. It was just this Kona race, and there was a couple of mm. events popping up in Australia. But there was no magazines. There was no internet. It wasn't as if they were everywhere like they are now. And Nobody knew what a triathlon was. If you said you did triathlon, people were like, what's that? You know, like, so <laughs> a very, very different uh, landscape than it is today. Mm. Uh, but, but these races that, races that you saw and eventually followed from Hawaii and Kuna, they, they become kind of idols, right? What, the, 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 the guys? The, Hawa the, Hawaii, the races, the triathletes. Yeah, the, the, the wall. I, I saw these two guys, and then I was sort of the one at Dave Scott and Mark Allen. They're, they're the founding fathers of... They're iconic people in triathlon, and uh, and I do vividly remember watching that race. And then there was a young Australian it's, at the time, a guy called Greg Welsh, who also grew up in my town, um, who went on to to do this race in 1989. So this is what, what started to push triathlon into the mainstream, probably like Lisa Norden has done in in Sweden. Um, we had this Greg Welsh guy come along, and he finished third in the Hawaiian Ironman, and that <clears throat> was a Uh, wow, we, you know, there's an Australian doing this crazy race, and triathlon started to be talked about under underlying conversations about this multi-sport, you know, phenom. And uh, Greg was from my town, and then the following year he finished second, and, and triathlon started popping up in Australia. And I was like, oh, I might do one, and and I think I was just on the wave of uh, a, a lot of things fell into place. And uh, you know, '92 I did my first race, and. And boom, that was it. I went from there. You never had your eyes on the coast to coast? In New Zealand? Yeah. No, 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 I never. You know, Australians never go to New Zealand. No, no, no I'm joking. Yeah. The Kiwi. Kiwis come to Australia. <laughs> no, I, I'm joking. I, I never, no, I I really didn't. No, I, Because that, that must have kind of coexisted with Ironman. It Man, did, yeah, yeah, it did. It's really yeah, old as well. Yeah, it, it is. And all that sort of, it was really the beginning of endurance, you know. We had that marathon boom in the 80s, oh, yeah. 70s and 80s, and... Uh, You know, people were looking for something else, and this presented a, you know, a feasible challenge to some people. Uh, uh, Ironman in Australia started. I think it was the third Ironman in the world, third or fourth Ironman, and and I remember 300 people, and it was 700 people, and then people started getting into it, and then these smaller events popped up, and Australians, 
you know, the circuit was going on around the world and these Australian kids were very, very good because we were fundamentally sound in the three disciplines because we had such strong swimming backgrounds. You know, a lot of the other nations around the world, these great runners, and especially in Europe, couldn't swim and vice versa, where we tended to, just because of sheer luck, most of us growing up on the coast, swimming has been ingrained to us. Even if you're a good swimmer, like my, a good runner like myself, I had a foundation in swimming. So when I started doing triathlon, especially when I first went to Europe, I'm swimming with the front guys and, and run, having the fastest run. That was just, at that time in, in triathlon, it was just, you never saw that. And uh, so it was definitely, uh, yeah, definitely the, the early stages of the sport. Uh, because you, you ended up, like in high school, you ended up being quite the triathlete. You, you, you managed to bring home some good titles, right? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was more a runner through high school. I was Australian running champion, schoolboy champion, and then it was uh, I took a running scholarship at the University of oh, New yeah. South Wales, yeah. um, which kept my father very happy. My father was uh, all about education, and uh, I, he, he enabled my running if it, if it had a purpose, and he saw that there was a purpose that if I ran well, I could get a scholarship and have university paid for. So he encouraged that in the last you know year of my my high school years. I took that scholarship, studied a bachelor of commerce degree, and majored in business accounting and. And um, and it was during college that I started doing triathlon, and and uh, I was pretty good at it. And, and I I picked races because there's small little events, you know. Tri you go to a triathlon in Australia, there'd be 400 people, like in a little town, because the local football club yeah. wanted to raise money for the team, so they put a triathlon on a participation race. They've done the fun run, they've done the thing. Oh, we'll try this swim bike run thing. You know, it was more community driven, mm. and we'll put up. You know, a, a tray of meat and uh, and three hundred dollars. You know, that would be the fun. I'm like, oh wow, I'd go there and I'd win. And I had friends that <laughs> free were free food and money. Yeah, free food and money. I'm living at college, and uh, I was like, wow, this is fantastic. And uh, and my friends were working in bars and stuff, and 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 so it, that's sort of how it kicked off for me. And I started winning races and and started buying the magazines, looking for more money to win. Okay, there's another race. That race in Queensland has seven hundred and fifty dollars to win. It's going to cost me 200 to get there. I should do, you know, you start, you know, what I'm going. And that's sort of how my triathlon career kicked off. And then you did, uh, you ended up doing what, what I think many people dream of doing, like you really hopping off the hamster wheel and uh, escaping the, the, the work in suit and tie. Yeah, well, I, took, I, I finished university. I took a job at Bankers Trust in uh, Sydney in funds management. Making your parents happy? Oh, my parents were ecstatic. Yeah, yeah, they were over the moon. I was miserable, but they were... They were over the moon, and you know, I remember—I I still remember a dinner party I went to, and my parents uh, were there, and I could hear my mother and father talking about Christopher just took a job in Bankers Trust with all their friends. Oh, you know, we're so proud of him. I'm thinking, oh, I hate it. You know, I hated the job, and and I just felt like it, coming from Australia, we're, we're so far away. You guys in Sweden, you're so close, you're so connected. You know, in Australia, we're a beautiful nation, but. We're at the bottom of the earth, so and there's a long distance between anything else. And I really wanted to travel, you know. I I had one taste of Europe, and I just thought it was fascinating, amazing, and just so different to to, to Australia. And uh, and and I saw the opportunity to, uh, you know, I'd taken this job, and I felt that I was I was stuck. Once I went to this corporate path, I was never getting out. This was me for the next. 30 years and there used to be a man that sat next to me Brian was his name he used to have the picture of his kids and everything in his cubicle and he was the oldest person I knew outside my parents that I had a relationship with in the sense that I would talk to him every day and mm. and um, he was 41 and I remember you know I'm 22 years of age at the time 
And I'm thinking, shit, this is my life. Life in a cubicle. This is this is me in 20 years. Like, that, that's it. Like, I'll go from this desk <laughs> to that desk. And it scared me to death. It really did. And it, it scared me in the sense that it wasn't that I wasn't ready for it. wasn't that I, I thought that wasn't a good enough job. But I just thought, I'm not ready for that yet. Just give me a few years to explore and get out. And I'll come back and happily do that. But not now. And so I decided one day on the train to work that I was going to quit my job. And I made that decision on a pack train and I walked straight in first thing in the morning to my boss's office and handed him my resignation. And he, he asked me what I was going to do if I'd taken a job somewhere else. And I'd only been there eight months. He said, and I said, no, I'm going to be a professional triathlete. And he laughed. <laughs> I said, good luck with that. And uh, two weeks or three weeks later, I was on a plane and heading to Europe. Were you scared that first day, that first Saturday morning waking up, you had quit your job? Yeah, I... I Because it was huge leap, you know. It was ways. a huge leap, but it was a relief, and uh, I was more scared about telling my parents. Um, and, and you know, I, I never really thought it through. The, the moment that I, you know, I tell this to a lot of the juniors I talk to now. You know, you have this this goal of being a professional, and you, you look at the the photo of the winner, and, and you've never looked. You never at that point in my life, I just seen that and thought it was such a romantic, cool thing to do. But I never really played it backwards, you know. And, uh, Never gone through the processes of what what it entails, what it means to fly to Europe, what happens when I get there, you know, where am I going to stay? What am I going to? I was just like, I want to go to Europe and then I'm going to be a pro. That's pretty much. The, the, <laughs> and so I remember being in Singapore. I told my parents, and they were, you know, wow, a bit shocked, but good luck with that. I sold everything I had. I had two thousand five hundred dollars Australian dollars, which mate, it was not a lot of money, and an open-ended ticket, and I was determined not to come home. That was, you know, that was. Basically, what I was going, I was going to stay overseas till I ran out of money, then I come home. And I remember landing in Singapore, a stopover to, to Europe. It's a 24-hour flight, and it was in Singapore that I realised, what am I going to do when I get to Paris? Like, well, where am I staying? What am I? I only got 2,500 bucks. Like, it's 100 a night for a hotel. <laughs> like, I hadn't. And that's when I started getting apprehensive. So yeah, I was. Did it uh, ever feel like you were? watching a movie sort of and you were just in the back seat and like these stuff like kept happening and yeah you just I, i just i think you get to a point with yourself that you just say to yourself i've got to be brave i don't want to look like i'm scared because i've told everyone this is what i want to do you know so i remember being at the airport going nervous but trying to look like i wasn't no it was going to be cool you know you try i keep saying you live this facade sometimes you project something that you don't feel internally and um you know it, The realization in Singapore was, hey, I don't need to project this. No one here knows me. Now, really, what is happening when I get to? You know what I mean? Like, you could what break are you? Down. Yeah, what? Well, oh, I could break. I could, well, where am I going to stay? I started getting a little bit anxious, then because I didn't need to pretend for anybody except for myself. So I arrived in Paris, and it was morning, and I bought a uh, a triathlon magazine. I had my bag. I was dragging it around the Charles de Gaulle, and bought a magazine. Flicked to the back. There was a race in Avignon, and. Uh, The following two days later, I arrived on a on a Thursday. It was a race on a Saturday. I, I got the slow train, and so I saved the night's accommodation. I arrived in Avignon. I stayed in a in a bed and breakfast place. I raced. I won thousand francs, and then I saw there was another race the following day in Orange, and that's pretty much how I did it. And then I ended up finding, you know, a place in Gap to to live, a, a cheap place to live, and I just raced. Saturday, Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, and I would take the slow trains between races because it would save me a night's accommodation. And man, I, I just constantly raced. And, and I tell the young kids now that come through a system with, 
you know, coaches and sports scientists and they race four times a year and they're preparing and peaking and they're like, how did you do it? I said, mate, I raced Friday, Saturday, Sunday if I could because if I didn't, I was going home, you know, and, and a lot of the generation, you know, they're called, it's called the golden generation of triathletes in Australia, that era that I came through because we were the best in the world, we came out of that. And, and unlike a lot of the Europeans when we were in Europe, if things didn't go well, we couldn't go home because going home was the end of it. You had, you, you, you're all in to get there. You've spent all your money to be in Europe. So if you're not racing well, you have to regroup and, and pull yourself together. A lot of the English guys that were in our clubs would have a, have a crappy couple of races and fly back to the UK. Mum would cook them a home-cooked meal and pat them on the head and tell them everything's going to be all right. For us, we're alone, homesick. You know, didn't speak the language at the time. It was it was just a different way of living, and uh, you know, you start to get momentum. You grow up pretty quickly, and and you know, the, it was enjoyable years. I remember at the time, not liking it. You know, I, I try and look back honestly, but I look at it now, and it was the best okay. years of my life. You know, I remember the time going, oh, I got no money. I'm going to do this another week. I'm going to have to go home, and then you win, <laughs> you win enough money to give you another week, and then suddenly you win enough money, and I remember the stress of it that. They were the best years, right? They were the best. Yeah, they were really uh, good does years. Does that kind of like survival mode, does that translate into your mentality as a racer? Do you think you gained experience like living from that? Uh, without, I think I gained a, a, a core hardness, you know. Uh, it's, there's no fake shell. You, you had to have that. I, I used to race guys and that was a paycheck. And it wasn't a fake paycheck that if, if I didn't get that, I ain't eating, you know what I mean? Like, it was real. Like, I didn't have mum and dad to go back to. I didn't have anything. So you, you do get this vicious, you know, competitive um, drive. I think It's it, like it, Hunger it, Games for you. Hunger Games. It toughens you <laughs> up. And it was the most homesick I've ever been in my life. You know, I you know, it was points there where I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it. That's just the biggest mistake of my life. But I was so proud because I knew once I went home, I didn't want my father to go, I told you so. I didn't want my brothers to laugh. I was just determined to do it, you know. And yeah, those initial years were, I look back now, and without that, those fundamental that core toughness and that, that, that aggressive racing week in, week out, you know, they gave me the skill set to when I finally broke in and, you know, I started getting sponsors and I could control my game and play a little bit more, Mate, it was it easy. was it was easy. Yeah. I don't have to race next week, so boom, I'm going to go to that one and I'm going to win. And then you know, when the game started to change, I think, I think more than anything, when you're when you're left to 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 solve problems for yourself and you work you work through the processes and you shape them in your own world, really, and you understand why. I guess it's like any corporate CEO; they understand the fundamentals of their business. And I understood, basically understood the fundamentals of what I was doing. That when you start to get some traction. You can answer every question that's or every obstacle that's thrown at you, and that's sort of really by the, you know, by six months in, you know, I'd done a lot of racing and I'd done a lot of work, a lot of training, and I got my head together. I started bang hitting the big ones and winning them, and then I started understanding how to train, what I needed to do, what worked for me, what didn't, picking the races that suited me early, and uh, and and things went from there. You were kind of try bombing. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty well, much. What was it like discovering the world through triathlon? Yeah, was well, there it, was, was a. It like? There was a, a. You know, the triathlon scene was really healthy in Europe at that time. Um, the French and German scene was really healthy, and um, the club, just that club, 
system works really well. That uh, they they never experienced Australians, you know. And there was a, a couple that had come earlier. It was like those early Tour de France days. Australians were new, and uh, sort of my wave, you know, in, in the Tour de France, you had the cycling Aussie cycling guys began, O'Grady's and the Robbie McEwens and the and I'd come on the triathlon scene at the same time in Europe, and we're just a different different thinkers and you know, we were a long way from home. I like to say we're a long way from home so we were hungrier. I, I really felt we were hungrier and and yeah, I, you, you learn what works for you, you learn what doesn't work for you, you pick the races and we were professionals. I, I, I think a lot of the guys now and you know they make a lot of money and you know, it doesn't necessarily make you professional. You know? Didn't those years kind of Strikes me now. Didn't that kind of coincide with Crocodile Dundee when all the world like fell in love with? Yeah, the it really was. Yeah, yeah. Well, Crocodile Dundee was about five or six years earlier, but yeah, it was sort of that. That we were awkward. We were Aussies. Everyone liked us because yeah. we were no worries. Everything's laid back. But you know, you had this no worries sort of attitude. But you were you were all very very competitive. Yeah. You know, and we uh, you know we played hard and raced hard. Um, you've experienced like two very like dark experiences yes. you have like two very sad incidents in your life um how did that how did that affect you uh like the loss of your friend and the loss of yeah, your mother yeah. yeah it was uh well the loss of my mum was a, a well both the losses were huge but the loss of my mum derailed me uh, you know I, i left home 96 and and uh i never went home you know i I was determined to stay away and become something. My, not that my parents did, weren't. My parents weren't actually ecstatic with the choice I'd made to quit my job, you know. And and so my staying in Europe, I was always had this this pressure on me, not pressure, but this determination I put on myself to come back something, you know, to have made it. And when I came back to Australia in '97 to win the world title in front of my parents, <clears throat> I said, "Dad, you know, this is what I do, you know, like you." And I, it was. We're so proud of you. You know, you did the right thing. You know, and at that point, the sport of triathlon had been accepted into the Olympics. I'm now the world number one world champion. 18 months out before the games, not two years out before the games. 18 months before selection, and uh, and you know, I'm home for a bit, and I went. I hadn't been. I saw my parents for a week. You know, and went back to Europe. French girlfriend. You know, doing my thing, and. Uh, You know, I, I came back for the Olympic trials in Japan, my first race, and my brother had told me that mum had got a little sick. She had a, a, a breast cancer scare, and when I spoke to her, you know, three months before I came back, mum's like, oh, no, it's nothing. You know, really, you, Christopher, just do what you do. You go and win the Olympics. It's in Sydney. It's the first Olympic gold medal of Sydney. And I'm like, oh, okay, mum, you sure? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't go back. And I came to Japan, and I won the first Olympic trial, and I rang home to, uh, to tell my parents that I'd won the Olympic trial and I was coming back through Sydney and uh, my brother answered the phone and said I needed to come home mum's really sick she's in hospital I was like what do you mean and he's like no one wanted to tell you because you had these Olympic trials and we know how important it is for you and blah 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 and so I flew home from Japan and you know, seven days later my mum was gone and I just the guilt it, I hadn't been home for so long I hadn't made those phone calls I hadn't you know all the little It was pre pre mobile phone days. I just didn't take the time. I was so caught up in this in me, you know, and I just felt so bad. I just and then I, I promised my mum on a deathbed that she, if she hung around, I said, "Mum, you got to hang around. I'm going to win the Olympics." 
Mum, I'm the best in the world. You need to, you need to see this. Remember that race we watched on television when I was young, and and Gregory, my older brother, and Stephen laughed and said, "I'm going to win that one too, the Hawaii Ironman. You've got to see this, Mum. You've got to fight this." You know, and she lost a battle, and and I didn't do the following. She died on a on a on a Tuesday, and the funeral was on a Friday, and the Sunday was the the next Olympic trial, and I opted out. Of course, yeah, which any exactly, yeah. of course you would. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the federation didn't see it that way. They as part of the selection criteria, you had to do both both races. And I thought, mate, they can't not pick me. I'm world number one, I'm world champion. They overlooked me. I couldn't believe it. And they said, oh, I'm not going to pick you. You'll be first reserve for the team. And I just was devastated. I retired. Um, that was the end of 99. And I ended up moving to Sweden, believe it or not, to yeah. Boros. Hanging out, with Jonas ha- hanging out with Jonas Colting. I just wanted to get away from Australia. And and I, uh, yeah, I went to, to Boros and... Just cleared my head and said, "That's it. I'm done with Australia. I'm done with. I'm done with Europe, France. I just want to escape the Federation for just." And I went to America. I watched the Olympics from the US. Just devastated. I watched a, you know, an event that I thought I could have won um, in my hometown. An event I promised my mother I would win, and uh, and it didn't happen. And my best friend Sean Maroney, who was the only guy, you know, in this whole journey with me, we were geeks for triathlon. You know, he's just with me and everything. And with me when my mum died. I've known him for my whole life. He's just a, one of those best mates you, you could possibly have. And he went through that whole process. We moved to, the, <clears throat> moved to America with me and, and uh, you know, just helped me get through that. And then I resurrected and found my career again in the US. And uh, I decided um, that I was going to chase the Hawaiian Ironman, honour my mother through the Hawaiian Ironman. And we'd both made commitments to each other, both Sean and I, that when we did the Hawaiian Ironman, we'd do it together. You know, like, even though I'm now this good triathlete and he's just an age group triathlete, we made a commitment as, as young boys that whenever we go to Hawaii, we're going to do the, do this race together. And uh, so he went and qualified in, a, in a, a smaller event in Hawaii and uh, he was out celebrating. You know, I'd qualified earlier in the year. He rang me that he qualified and said, we're both going to Hawaii. You know, like, how good is this? And he was out celebrating. He fell from the 25th floor of a building in Hawaii and... And yeah, he never got to go. So that was like, you know, and you know, it was, a lot of people have, a lot of people have hard moments. But for me, they were tough. You know, Mum was ridiculously tough, but and Sean was ridiculously tough. You know, just, you know, and but my wife Emma ended my life then, and everything's been positive ever since. You know, I think in sports, people you always think it's your, especially individual sports, it can feel so selfish. But people play such an a major role. You know, in so many different reasons. You know, you always talk about coach-athlete relationship, but there's spouse-athlete relationship, there's friend-athlete relationships that all create a, a an animal that's competitive. And uh, all these people were critical in uh, in my development as an athlete. Did uh, triathlon kind of served as a, as a therapy for you? Yeah, my brother said that. He said I'm a head case, and <laughs> uh, I think it did. I yeah, I think I'm a uh, I'm an overthinker a lot, you know, I do let my, and I think triathlon was my own therapy in the sense that I love the bike riding, I, li- I like training with people, I'm definitely a social trainer, but I also enjoy sessions where I can take things in, and that's why I used to love training in Europe, just the, the sheer beauty of, of Europe is just mind-blowing, and uh, I just, I like taking it in, and I, yeah, I, is it therapy? My brother says the same thing, but it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, just fa- I just found it very, very satisfying, it satisfied all my cravings, 
it satisfied uh, me physically and uh, and and mentally I got out of it what I was looking for you know a, a, a discovery of was I good enough you know am I good enough in, in I know, but I'm, I'm also thinking because like going through your book for instance like it seems like you kind of started using these losses as kind of a secret weapon to to overcome the obstacles like I'm doing this for you're doing this for your mother, mother you're yes. doing this for Sean so you kind of you 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 create this like like this this secret weapon that's impossible to beat in a way. Well I think that's a, that was what I was I was either people always say I was either motivated by anger and that anger was always attached to something very very personal and so with my mother I I was so angry at the Australian Federation I said how dare you 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 nobody like you rob me of my destiny you know like I work hard I do everything hard I'm lying on my mother's deathbed and I said to you I will win this medal for you mum you need to say you don't know what that means to me you just tick a box <laughs> nah I don't think his head's right not going to the Olympics you're just a, a chair you sit in a chair and you tick a box and you ruin someone's dream like that It'd be different if I I didn't have the runs on the board and uh, so that anger attached to the emotion of honoring my mother I've said it millions of times was the critical turning point in my career from now I went three years without losing a race I was so angry and driven to expose these people who left me off this team you know and expose them to one of my mother because I felt guilt when I going home and I felt guilt that I wasn't able to deliver on something when I should have been able to because someone didn't think I was head right so I went three years without losing a race and I would target the Olympic champion who was a friend of mine and it was nothing personal to him but it was just a, the way I could communicate was through sport and it became part of the show kind of it became part of the show definitely and, and that was the same with with uh, you know I was just always needed something to to give me that extra drive so it was definitely my mother in that phase and then in those early years in Kona it was picking you know taking on the bullies picking on the fights with the guys that I thought had a title that I wanted and creating this 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 environment or ecosystem of, of uh, stress for myself that made it I had I had to get up when the alarm went off at 4:30. I'm getting up no matter how bad it feels because I've created an environment where if I lose I look like a clown. So I don't want to feel that way. So you get the job done. So I made myself accountable to myself, and and for my team, the guys I put around me, and uh, it was it was stressful for them because I, you know, I, I expected the same from them, and uh, and they always delivered. Yeah. What's the deal with 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 Kuna? The deal with Kona, or like to yeah. for me now, yeah. or to to win it, or crack yeah. it. I mean, for you, what what role did it play? In my life, it was the most important thing because I couldn't win the Olympics. I needed something to give to my mother. For me, it was the ticking of the box. It was a list of races. Me and Sean made a list of races out when we were seventeen that we were going to win when we grew up. You know, like, and uh, we, it was the last one I hadn't ticked. I'd won every race except this Kona one, and it became a real puzzle for me. And I started panic a bit because you know I didn't have the Olympic gold I had all these titles and everyone was raving about how good an athlete I was but you know for me personally I said to mum you're not going to win this race I said it was the race that my brother said you'll never be able to do it let alone win it it was the race that sports scientists said you can't do it's impossible you're a dreamer so it became this 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 holy grail yeah, yeah this holy grail and this I'm going to do it for you mum I'm going to do it because all these people say I can't do it. I want to expose people for being 
so willing to tell you what you can't do, you know, and, and so for me it was the greatest, personally the greatest victory of my life. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, like I've never wanted something so much. I've never committed to something so much. I've never, I was never so enthralled and, and, and obsessed with something as much as that race. And, you know, I went to unbelievable lengths to win it, you know, And all these uh, like components, all these elements, all put together, you also brought something new to the sport with like kind of your, your attitude and yeah, uh, yeah, I guess it was in, in one way like naivety and yeah. uh, and and uh, like the cocky attitude and uh, and um, uh, and was that something new for the? For yeah, the sport? it was very very new for the sport. And I, I didn't mean to be cocky, to be honest with you. I just was, I was just openly stating my goals constantly. To, to as much to reassure myself as it was to reassure anybody else that you know I was always I always believed that you have to put it out there if you want something you don't hide behind it and pretend you don't want it oh I don't want to say it and that means you don't really want it if you want to if you want to buy that house you're going to buy that house one day you say it you put it out there and that was the same with me I'm going to win this race and people thought come on you can't say that I'm like why it's what I want you know and so people some people didn't like me you know I must admit and some people did thought I was refreshing but ultimately uh, you know that you know me coming along I vividly remember my first ever Kona and I walked into the you know I haven't lost a race in three years I've won, done one Ironman and I've won it I've done one half Ironman and I've done, I won it both of them in record time I've turned up to Kona I'm going to win. In my head, it's just another triathlon. And I sat there with the NBC guys in the in the, in the the room. Actually, it's how I got the name for my book, I'm Here to Win. I sat there and they, you know, they were going, all these other guys for years have been, you know, they'd ask some questions, how do you think you'll go? And the common response was, I'll, I just focus on myself. I'll, you know, I, I don't look at anybody, which is a lie. Everybody focuses on, you know, it's just, it's just a lie, you know, and just give these politically correct 
nothing answers, you know, and and I've come into this room and they're like, oh, here's the new hotshot kid, he's a short course specialist, he's come across Diamond and Chris McCormick, how do you think you're going to go in Hawaii? I said, well, mate, I didn't come to Hawaii for a holiday, nice place to visit, but I came here to win this event. And the guy's wow, so you, you've done one Ironman. I said, yeah, I've done one, I've won it. I've done one half Ironman, I've won it. I haven't lost a race in three years, so why would I... I mean, I'm in the habit of winning races. Why break that habit? You know, this guy's like, just kept interviewing me. You know, interviewing, interviewing. He's like, what about paying your dues? Do you believe... I said, mate, I've raced professionally for the last, you know, eight years. I'm paid up in full. You know, I'm, I don't buy into all that mumbo-jumbo, paying your dues. I'm going to swim, bike and run quicker than anyone on this island. I'm going to win. I, I didn't come here for anything else. I'm here to win. And uh, the guy actually said to me, when the interview was over, he's like, kid... You pull this off, and you will be very, very, very good for your sport. Very good, you know. And uh, I didn't pull it off. And of course, they showed all that footage. And that year, it was one American guy, Tim DeBoom, won the race for his second time. And they presented me as this cocky young villain. And that was sort of how this villainous persona of me originally came started, which I, I walked into myself. But it also it, 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 it really established me and ultimately I ended up putting the runs on the board there and I was winning other races around the world so people knew who I was oh, this is this guy some people didn't even know me didn't like me other people thought I was breath of fresh air and then I just continued you know I continually stated what I wanted to do and people liked it do you like the role of being kind of a like an outsider yeah yeah I, I don't think I've ever felt like I fit you know I, I think any any middle child feels that way you uh you, know, you don't you don't know where you fit into the equation in anything and um you know i you know i never you know i used to do try i was good at triathlon but i didn't really you know even on the circuit with the pro guys i had a core group of mates that you know i got along well with but i like to do other things you know triathletes are type a personalities very obsessive compulsive and and uh a lot of the things they did just didn't interest me you know i i and you know, my group of friends, we, we played hard and I, I liked to do, you know, I was very, very disciplined, don't get me wrong, but I also like to have a good time, you know, and I always reward a goal or the achievement of a goal with a, with a reward, bang. Not, where a lot of the triathletes were like, bang, win a race, they just straight on to the next one. I got quite famous for winning the race and partying, you know, it was like, a, and because it wasn't my race to win, there was five of my guys at my training partners who had slaved with me every single day i took them out you know it's as much i always felt that way that it was my mate i know i crossed the line first but you every single one of you played a big role so i i always felt that was important so i always felt like an outsider because it was very very different to what everyone else was doing was it important fuel to oh fuel, yeah to, to to kind of be the be the outsider without question i, I thought i was uh you know I, you, you, sometimes you sort of get bullied into being an outsider. You don't realise you're an outsider until you're the outsider. And, you, you know, people sort of box you and place you out there. And, you know, I made a few statements and then suddenly people, you know, I was like, you know what, I'm happy to be out here, you know. And, and not only am I happy to be out here, but I'm going to throw rocks at you guys that are in there and that's going to be my fuel. And the outsider's going to expose you as... Uh, as the norm or the big group is actually it's actually cooler to be outside as an outsider so i used to go to boulder perfect example i used to go and train in boulder in the 90s then all the triathletes moved to boulder because they're all sheep because i was winning all the races out of boulder i left and like too many and people go well why did you leave boulder too many triathletes 
but don't you do triathlon? I'm like, yeah, I do, but I don't need to hang out with the guys. I, uh, I race, and I need to see what I'm doing. And so I went to San Diego, I went to LA. And, uh, and these, it's, it's funny, these, these core decisions in my life I look at now, just by sheer chance, by being an outsider, you look at things differently. Boulder, as a hub, it's a small town in America. And if you're trying to, triathlon's a boutique sport. So when I moved to LA, my whole life changed. Just by chance, triathlon started becoming a sport that a lot of the Hollywood celebs wanted to do. And I'm the world champion living in LA. So I'm meeting these guys. So suddenly I'm helping them, coaching them. Well, the guys in Boulder live in a small town, focused on themselves, racing, you know, and so they missed all these opportunities. Where had I been an insider, I would have stayed in Boulder with them and I would have missed all the opportunities. So sometimes being an outsider works. And then I, and by sheer chance, it worked a lot for me. It also seems you like the role of the, uh, the classic underdog. Yeah, I think I've always, uh, I've always loved that. In, uh, I always barrack for the underdog. I, um, and I think it just suits my personality. I like, I like, I'm a, I'm a guy that likes, that is relatively non-confrontational until I'm pushed in a corner and forced to fight, and then I'll, you know, then I'll fight. But so I think the underdog is always, this guy's going to get beaten up. This guy's going to get, and and they're the one that you hope wins. So I think that's my always been my personality. Um, I I come from the corner swinging. <laughs> And also with the uh, being a very extrovert, like outgoing person, is that also a is that also a, a good thing as a triathlete, like being eccentric individual? Eccentric. <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, I think you know it's uh, all different. All different people nowadays. For me, it, I couldn't. I needed to be that. I, you know, I I love the. I'm, I'm a. I can get caught up in my my own, you know, when I get in these processes. Maybe I can get, I call them like a, a circle whirlpool, and I can, you can get in and can suck you down the sink if you don't pull back sometimes. And uh, I can see why triathletes get that way because it's just session after session after session, food and food and sleep and sleep and recovery and recovery. And so yeah, where uh, you know I I think being outspoken and being open and wanting to have a good time and 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 having people that pull you back is uh, was a good positive thing for me. How would you describe the the triathlon scene today? I think it's very healthy. I, you know, it's growing exponentially year after year um, at, a, at a participation and amateur level. I, it's phenomenal. I think it's. And I always felt as a triathlete in my early years that I was an oddity. You know, there was, you know, that I was. Why would I want to do this? Why do people want to do this? And that, and you used to talk to people and you used to really get that look. Why would you want to do that? But now you re I realise with the growth of triathlon, there's a lot of people who are just like me. They're odd. We're different. And it's that that in itself is reassuring. <laughs> that uh, you know, I love that the sport's exploding around the world. Professionally, it, it has its challenges. Um, you know, I, I I think the sport's great. You know, professionally, a lot of the professionals have to be more professional themselves you know there's a lot of guys out there I call them fit guys who don't work <laughs> they just they don't they're not really professional they like the lifestyle and the, and that's fine that's fine but there needs to be a you know a more a more difficult process in in defining professionalism within triathlon professional licenses and there should be an elite level and I think uh, with that if you were to redefine that there's some huge upscale for, for the pros because uh, you know sport generates billions globally 
you know, and uh, so as a professional sport, there's a lot of sports out there that generate much less money to pay a lot more for the professionals, but I think the pros are, yeah, they need to be more like outsiders and, have a look and reflect at what the sport is for them instead of, and how they can actually shape and change that. But for the amateurs, just to see people experience it and there's so many events now, it's fantastic. What has been your strategy as a professional triathlete? What's your what's the Macca strategy? My I think is to be smarter, you know. And I I I told this to my dad, 2010 when I won my last Kona. I said, Dad, you know what? For years I fought the fact that you pushed education down my throat, and and I mean this with the utmost respect. And it's going to come off cocky, <laughs> but I, this is exactly what I said to my father. I said, Dad, you never realise you're intelligent as a person until you hang around with unintelligent people. You know, and, and, and I said, and, and I see it in the corporate world when you're when you're with intelligent people, intelligent conversation. You get smarter, you learn, and and I never realised how intelligent I was, relatively speaking, or the the, the education my father had, had driven down me until I was running with athletes. So I think my strategy was I was smarter and I could outthink them, and that that triathletes were creatures of habit. And, and simple creatures to understand. So once you knew what their play was, it's easy to pick a weakness, pick a and you pick a hole in, in their arsenal and you attack it. And so I think I wasn't the best swimmer, biker, and runner. And I think if you if you measured all the VO2 maxes and all the and and we did all these scientific tests of all the best athletes of the time, I would come out on the top as the person who overperformed on what they should have been able to do. If, if that makes sense, you know, as a because I think I just outthought people. I won races I shouldn't have won because I was smarter. When did you start realizing that you had this kind of? When I started questioning myself, when I started failing myself, I became a lot more reflective. And uh, you know, you, you don't you don't reflect until you until you hit with an obstacle. And when I won all these races for four years in a row, I'm not losing. So why just keep doing what you're doing? You know, I'm, it's 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 working. Then you get bang, you don't win. You're like, oh, okay. You, you, your first thought is, oh, it's just a glitch. Don't worry about it. Back to normality. And uh, it's only when you're confronted with, and that confrontation for me was the struggles in trying to win Kona, the, the fact that I was a big guy and I had issues with heat management. And uh, and so I had to be more reflective. And realize, well, okay, everyone's telling me I can't win this race. The sports scientists telling me I can't win this race. You know, everyone. You know, everyone. I can't win this race. I'm the biggest. The history books say I can't win this race. I've got to be this size to win it. Well, there's got to be another way. You know, and I've got to. I've got, and, you know, triathletes are so physical and quantitative in their thinking. I said, there's got to be a way where I can uh, think my way through this. You know, be smarter. And so I started putting out the play. Okay, here's the. How do I win? Goal: win race. Okay. What's in the way? Athletes. Who are they? Bing, 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 bing. What have they done? Bing, bing. Strengths and weaknesses. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. So let's know what I'm looking at. What are my strengths and weaknesses? Bing, bing, bing. How am I fixing those? Okay. I can control that. I can't control what they're going. Those guys are doing. So my biggest weakness is second guessing myself. I don't know if that's what theirs is. So I'm going to start putting on them. So I would tell these athletes to try and hide behind their facade. That they're bad bike riders because they've booked the, the, the results show. Like Craig Alexander, you can't ride a bike. You never have been able to, mate. You know that. I know that. Now people didn't like that I was doing that, but I know in his head, he probably questions his bike rides. So I just wanted to double enforce it that I knew too. And you create these fears because in an Ironman race, 
ultimately I don't have to be faster than these guys, I just have to slow down before them. So I used to think, if I can just keep up with these guys, which I know I can do, and then they slow down first, it's like, it's like tennis. You can win a tennis match through unforced errors. The other person can break before you do, and you still win the match. So that's how I started to play it. I really got very, very uh, cerebral in my thinking around racing. People thought I was losing the plot, a lot of my mates, uh, but I, I, I had a good work ethic and, and I went about winning races like that, being smarter, understanding what I was dealing with and racing, racing the numbers. Is that also one way how you managed to keep up the motivation and interest in yourself for the sport, that you kind of added like a fourth sport to it? Like yeah. you have the, the swimming, the biking, the running, but also you have this mental, uh, this chess game, like you created a, a chess game out of it. I created this. a paranoid world for myself. <laughs> really, uh, my wife, it's exactly what my wife said, it, would be, it was a game. It became my game and I wanted to play it and, and, and I, you would sit there. I honestly would. I'd be like, right, um, Farisol Sultan is racing next week. How can I get into this guy's head? I, I'd be sitting at home at dinner. Faris is racing next week because it's now like right. I would, uh, you know, I'd do an interview. Yeah, I heard Faris is racing this week and he needs to. He's racing, you know. Like I would pick on him because we all pretend that we don't listen to each other's stuff. But he, I read everything he writes. He reads everything I write. So I, I started realizing that. So I wanted to make sure what I can, I communicated with my peers through the media. But I communicated cleverly in the sense that I'm doing an interview. On my side, I'm bulletproof. But these guys are weak, you know. And my side, I'm, I never showed weakness on my side. I picked races, I won them. When I did an interview, I said, now I've never got out of second gear. When I was really flat out. So yeah, as you can see, my swim is exceptional. As you can see, my bike, I'm bike riding better than it. As you can see, my run. Oh, yeah, Faris. <laughs> Mate, dog. Mate, I went four minutes quicker on that course last year. You know, I always tried to create doubt in them. And support me because I thought ultimately in an Ironman race when you run out in that last hour of a race there's no coach, there's no training session, there's nothing that can get you home except an, a willingness that, to push and fight and that, that willingness is an ugly place because all your body wants to do is stop, all your mind is telling you to do is stop, every single fear and inhibition rises to the surface and how you deal with that is imperative. And if I've implanted subconsciously into their head that they're no good and they can't do it, then I felt it would work and it became that game. When it comes to that mental game, have you ever said or done anything that you kind of regret? Yeah, a few things, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, there's a, you know, a few, uh, I've never regretted saying anything, but I've, uh, you know, because I always thought what I was saying was the facts. I didn't just make stuff up. You know, I, but I, I think uh, my obsession with winning was um, in my own world, and that obsession, it, you know, I steamrolled a lot of people to do it, you know, and you're like, I don't care, boom, you know, and I use people as, you know, really nice guys, you know, guys like Simon Whitfield, Olympic champion, they never done anything to me, you know, I'm not best friends with any, but I would target Simon Whitfield to race him because because if it was Simon Whitfield, if it was someone else with the Olympic title it would have been him my target so it was nothing personal against Simon but I would target him because he had a title and that title gave me kudos when I beat him so I would beat him and then go mate that guy calls himself the Olympic champion I just pumped him by five minutes please he's like hey man like I've done nothing to you but I was using that platform to instill fear into my other competitors you know and, and so I regret uh, some of those things I never thought through as because I was so obsessed with, uh, with winning this race. 
and I knew that the, 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 the deck was stacked against me to do it, so I needed anything else. So I would, uh, they're, they're the things I regret. But on the, on the front of, of saying that so-and-so is a bad bike rider, or I always backed anything I said with fact, I'd be able to, someone challenged me, I'd say, well, mate, show me where I'm wrong. This bike race, this thing, this thing, this thing. I always felt that I was the most prepared on the, on the field of play than anyone else. Physically, there were, there were athletes way superior, but when it came to tactics, when it came to understanding who the players were, what their strengths were, where they're doing their work, I was, my attention to detail was incredible. When did you start like talking openly about your strategy and about your... Well, in, 2000, uh, in you know, 2007, I won my first title, big relief. 2008, I, you know, 2007, Craig Alexander finishes second to me, my training partner for many years. So that was a good race, but status quite normal. Me first, Crowey second. It had been that way for 20 years, you know, my, our whole career. Cormac first, Alexander second, or Alexander behind. 2008, I have a mechanical. Craig Alexander now wins. So I've got one title. He's got one title. I'm like, wow. You know, but of course in my head it's like, well, of course you won. I had a mechanical, if, if you, you know. And, and I made sure I said that too, because, well, you know. So in 2009, I go back, and now it's Crowey, Macca, showdown. And I said in 2009, I never got to defend my title last year. I was taken out of the race. So this year I'm defending a title that Craig has borrowed. I openly said that. And Craig schooled me. Yeah, he beat me fair and square. And that was the first big defeat I'd ever suffered at the hands of Crowey. And it was on the biggest, the biggest field. And uh, suddenly he's got two titles, I've got one, I'm this loud-spoken guy who's picked on Crowey, he's very different personality to me, and uh, I thought to myself, I thought to myself, um, you know, okay, I guess i got to live with it, I'm done, you know, I'll, I'll walk away, but my wife knew I wasn't going to be happy with that, and I was like, I can't deal with the fact that Craig has two of these titles and I only have one, like it's... You know, and no matter how I painted it, in my head he beat me once. You know, it was one all. You know, like, I can, I can think of myself. How can we have had two wars in Kona, and he's got two titles, and I got one? I, I just got frustrated with it. You know, and, and my wife could see my frustration. I'm going, I can't believe Crowy. It's Crowy. You know, and and Emma said to me, Do you want to do one more? I want to do one more race. I said, Oh, I wouldn't mind. And that was my whole course. If it wasn't Craig Alexander, nothing against Craig. And I honestly, it was always about me in this world. And I say I was obsessive. It was nothing personal about Craig. But in my my head, the way I ticked was that title's mine. And and yeah, you beat me, but you know better than me. That was how I honestly thought at the time. So I went back and said I'm going to win. And so when I look, I played the cards on the table and I realised Craig Alexander is a much better runner than I am in heat. He's the perfect size for Kona, 68 kilograms. Stats show in the heat he's, he's way better than me. But I'm a better bite rider so I realised I needed other, he'd won two titles by athletes being scared of his run but they play into his hands so I formulated a strategy where I'd start communicating with the press but communicating with my peers by saying, hey man, in order to beat this guy, this is what you need to do. Like, and then I started flying to Europe and racing these races against my peers, the, the guys who were also vying for the title, and I'd race them and beat them and then sit down with them after the race and go, mate, this year in Kona, you know what we need to do? We need to be aggressive on the bike because Craig is a shit bike rider. 
You know, and if we get away, he can run as quick as he wants, but we'll have 10 minutes on him. But we, you guys aren't attacking. We need to attack in this section in the crosswind, and and that's what we started. We started doing, and then obviously we put that into play. And when I won in 2010, I was like, yes, you know, I, I initiated, and, uh, and that's when I think the world realised within triathlon that I was this quite a quite strategic. a yeah quite a strategic but, what, what kind of reaction because in your in your book you you talk kind of openly about this what yeah. kind of reactions did you get like uh, did anyone like confront you and got like upset or or, no, or on the other hand like were they like well, ah, Craig, so that was what, what well, you Craig, were doing. Well, Craig talks like I, I I convinced the field to race against him which is not the case which is not the case I worked off the assumption that every single athlete races is selfish in their own head and and you have to think they're creatures of habit it's very difficult to change so they're going to implement a strategy that will give them the most chance they believe of success now I, I was trying to point out to these athletes you implement the strategy you've been doing the last two years you keep getting schooled by this guy on the run strategy's wrong whether you like it or not go away speak to your coach but you're a good bike rider you're a very good swimmer what the hell are you getting off the bike with the best runner for think Yeah. Now I didn't know he was. These guys were going to do that, but I would only assume that they, on their way, in their own way, in their own head, they want to win this race. And they're like, "This McCormack guy's making sense. He's right. I am a good biker." Even though you know it, sometimes you just you need the confidence that your peers do it. And I just kept instilling it in everybody, instilling it. I said, "Guys, no more waiting around. We attack and we attack hard. We attack up." Now it wasn't as if the day before everyone was like, "Hey, Macca," you know. And, and, in the windy section we'll all get together and we'll attack in fact when the attack went up the road I missed it three guys attacked and I got alienated I was still with Craig I'm like oh I've been talking all year about this attack and I've missed it like you idiot you idiot I just sort of stay calm and and then ultimately I attacked and rode across to the group and then there was five or six of us away and we went on to ride 10 minutes into the field which is what I said would happen and uh, and we ultimately won the race I ultimately won the race now obviously Craig after the race was like Oh, Macca initiated this this concerted effort, group concerted effort, to 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 beat me. That's not the case. I just pointed out the obvious. But if you don't fix your bike ride, of course you're going to come back to Kona Craig with the same formula you've won with the last two years, sitting on the bike, run fast. So the fact that you you have shown your hand twice, silly guys that came in prepared the same way. You need to go back to the drawing board now and fix your problem, which he did in 2011. He went, I cannot have a weak bike anymore. I need to give up some of my run and get a grip. following year, he was one of the best bikers, but he lost his run. But he didn't have to do that at that point. And sometimes, as I said, in my career, you need other people to show you why to make changes. And Craig, at that point, hadn't had that. And that was, uh, you know, I was able to dislodge him and, and prove a lot of people wrong which was nice and going through your book i made a i made a note quite early i made a note uh, saying muhammad ali yes and uh, then you eventually you know you ended up talking about him and yeah. uh, him being one of your your Big role idols. models and yes. idols and he's an amazing man and an amazing athlete and he also did like so it seems like you 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 share this strategy you share this thinking i think the first time i uh i really related to that guy and i used to grow i grew up watching mike tyson and, and one of my close friends mg who's 12 or 13 years old and me used to talk about ali as my father did and i used to think oh, ali is before my time how can a how can an old fart from before my time be better than mike tyson mike tyson's the greatest and he's like kid watch these videos mate and i understand and, and mg was very very good at pointing out 
the environment surrounding a champion and I think that's where where Ali's incredible the era he was in in the 60s with the you know with discrimination against against you know African Americans and and he uh, and just what was going on in his life and then how he used not only his strength as a fighter and his skills but he used his mind to beat people to create doubt to, to make people do things they weren't supposed to do. And I liked it. And just everything about us. So that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. You know, and, and uh, I loved him. And I'm, I'm his biggest fan. Everyone should watch the, the Rumble in the Jungle. It's an oh, amazing movie movies. and it's an amazing yeah, yeah. story. And it's, yeah. uh, you see all of this like, yeah. behind the scenes. Well, if, if you watch the Rumble in the Jungle, understanding the foundation before, he, he's, he goes in to fight George Foreman. And Foreman's knocked out Joe Frazier in three rounds, mate. Like, not like obliterated Joe Frazier and, and Ali has had two 15 round wars with Frazier you know Frazier's beaten him knocked him out knocked him on the canvas and so Ali's coming back after losing the older guy older guy losing to Joe Joe's now got his head punched in by in three rounds by this George Foreman and, and Ali picks a fight with a man everyone in my life 2010 was that for me you know like everyone said you're insane. You cannot beat these guys. Can't happen. Yeah, let it go, man. Let it go, champ. You don't need this. And maybe he exposed him. He said he's two-dimensional. He has no, you know, I'll just keep leaning on the ropes. The right famous rope adapt. Incredible. Incredible. Let this man punch himself out. Bang, bang, bang. Knocked him out. And, and if you watch now the uh, Kings of the Ring, have you seen that? Where they interview... Um, they interviewed George Foreman and Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, a few years ago. And they asked them all, who was the greatest? And, you, know, you get to George Foreman, who's knocked them all out except Ali. You know, and, and obviously Frazier and Ali have these issues. <laughs> but George Foreman says, honestly, Joe Frazier hit me harder. Hit me the hardest I've ever been hit in my life. Was more athletic. But nobody, nobody got in my head like Muhammad Ali. And I lost that fight because I lost my strength. Of, you know, I lost, I, I didn't dictate anymore. And, and to me, an athlete is able to do everything well. And Muhammad Ali, in my opinion, is the greatest. And I was just like, yes. You know, it's, you know and I, I really feel like it's, it, it's important as an athlete to, to be tactically smart, to, to, to understand the game, the state of play. To, if you're not doing that, you're not professional. You're not... If you're just going in, training and crossing your fingers and hoping that all that work pays off, you're insane. You need to, to, to have more, you know, bows to your arrow. Was it like you imagined, like winning these titles in, in Hawaii? Was it like you imagined? The first one, I, I, I don't remember. I was so emotional. Um, you know, I remember sitting after the race. It was like a, you know, it was just in a blur of haze. I didn't even take the sponges out. My finished photo's horrible. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was just so elated. And, and so that felt amazing. Um, but I remember sitting there in 2007, and that's when I, I was dis I was, I was actually sad, you know. I thought, man, I wish my mum was here to see this. And then, you know, I, I think it was a, you know, I just started, we had a young family. My, I had two kids, and it was a phase of my life where I started to question what I wanted to do, whether I should move home to Australia. We've been abroad for a long time. We're looking to settle the kids down. And, and uh, you know, and then suddenly I'm no longer 
the sport just moves on. Like the machine of, of medium and sport moves on and suddenly they shelve you. Like, okay, champ, if you're not going to do that, then you're done, next champion, because we need to market somebody. And I felt like, wow, you're retiring me. You're retiring me. I'm not ready to retire. Let me make up. You know, so for 2010 for me was probably the greatest feeling in my life because, you know, I did it with the family. Approval. I did it. I did it with uh, with other people involved. I did it against all odds, and uh, that, that feeling is is priceless. It was amazing. Yeah, that one. Yeah, it was as good as I thought it was. That one was bit even better. It was even better. Uh, so we're in Thailand now, in in Tanyapura, in Thailand. Mm -hmm. What's it? What's your role at Tanyapura? Tanyapura is a it's um, as you know a big sports club. Uh, sports bigger than a sports club. I guess we're predominantly a. Uh, uh, International Baccalaureate School called PIA, Phuket National Academy, attached to amazing sports facilities. And we have two hotels, a mine centre and a boarding school. And uh, I came here uh, about a year ago, a bit over a year ago, in a training capacity and uh, saw this facility. I was like, this is incredible. Met the founder, Klaus Heben, a century billionaire, uh, who had built this on a vision of his to. To, to do something positive for kids and instill a, a, a lifestyle that he never had, even though he was very, very successful. He wanted to do something he wished he could have done when he was young. And uh, and he asked me to, to help grow his vision. And uh, he'd read my book and uh, he was uh, he, he interviewed me a few times. I wasn't looking for a job. He actually, he says our interviews, he took me to lunch a few times and then he, he said, you need to run my my centre. I said, I said, Class, I've never run a hotel. I've stayed in many hotels. I've never run hotels. I've never run schools. I've never run. He's like, you know what? You're going to be my executive chairman, and uh, I want you to implement exactly what you did in your in your sports career to my centre. I want that same commitment, that same passion, that same open-mindedness, that same stubbornness, that same everything to make this centre work. And uh, he gave me carte blanche to do what I want. A huge budget, and I said, okay, well, I need. I'll build a team for you that won't fail you, and uh, been here a year, almost a year, and he's, uh, yeah, we've turned the ship, he's very, very happy, I've enjoyed it corporately, and I see it very similar as sport, you know, I think corporates are, I call them corporate athletes, we're very similar thinkers, and I have realised in the corporate world, and, I, and I've appreciated now because I look at my sporting career from a different perspective, I actually look at myself from a different perspective, I can't believe how intense I was in triathlon, but I realise that I'm a it wasn't the sport that gave me satisfaction, it was goals, you know, setting a goal and then working out the process of execution. So an execution in sport is executing on race day to win. Execution in the corporate world is hitting a number, hitting a KPI. So I was very, when I came in here, I'm like, right, I need clearly definable goals. There wasn't any, because class was quite open. You know, I want you to just make it work. Well, define making it work. I need measurable goals, so I went back to say, I'm going to, well, these are the benchmarks I want you to measure. The cards also is getting yes, spread all yeah. over again. Same game, same <laughs> game. I said, right, this is what I want, Klaus, what do you want? We sat for a week. He's like, I want this to work. I said, okay, well, this is the shape. You, you happy with that? Yeah, well, I want these clearly defined. Well, I need that guy. He's like, who's that? I said, well, he's run Ritz Carlton. He's a hotelier. I'm not a hotelier. Let's get a hotelier who's exceptional hoteling. And, uh, we did the same with the school. I said, let's get the best school guy. And uh, I said, we can execute. We just get the best people in those positions. And ultimately, uh, it's it's a no-brainer. You just control that and you said, okay, done. And so I did that. And I've, I'm very, very, very happy with how we're, we're progressing. 
Yeah. Where can we find the, the, the Maccas of today, like the Trailblazers and the Rebels? And the... Oh, no, I think the, I think the young athletes of today are, like the, you know, the Wolves were just on yesterday, the 70.3 with Javier Gomez and these guys there. Athletically speaking, they're phenomenal. I think, corp, you know, marketability-wise, they're phenomenal. I just, you know, I think it's just a different era. I think, you know, all sports will have characters that come along to some degree and you know, I, uh, where do you find people like me? There's only one me. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to find another person like me. Where I'm a head case. <laughs> so. Where in life are you now? Um, middle-aged. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, my wife thinks I'm having a midlife crisis, but I, uh, now I think in life I'm, I'm more content. I'm much. Uh, I'm in a place I didn't think I, I would ever be. I could ever be. You know, I, not as intense. I'm, I'm actually athletically content you know and I don't think I was ever that and that's what made me chase all the time and I think uh, 2012 when I won that last I won my last world title 2012 in uh, ITU long course in, in Spain I was like you know what I got everything there's nothing I haven't won you know so what am I chasing Will two more make me happy well you know, I started looking not at the results that seemed to be the most important thing in my life, but what those results gave me personally. Not what they gave other people. They used to go, Mackie, you should go and win Kona again. And I used to feel like, what, to entertain you? Or what am I getting out of that? You know, and, and what are the costs on my side? And I thought, you know what, I've survived this sport. I've won more than 230 races. I've won world championships. I've medaled everywhere. I've still got my family intact and I'm still healthy. And I'm still, you know what? I'm out. You know, and so sports-wise, I'm athletically content, and I don't feel the need to throw my hat in the ring all the time. And now I'm looking at other goals corporately, but this time the journey is with the family first. You know, and, and we we march along together. And I don't want to make any any sacrifices on uh, my time with them. What do you think has been the most important base to your success? Stubbornness. Um, uh, uh, I think the most important base is don't you don't take everything on face value. You know there is a way to everything, and and I read a a quote that my father wrote to my younger brother, and it's the best quote. He said, "You know, son, six plus three equals nine, but so does five plus four. You know, so it's eight plus one. There's a lot of ways to get to nine. You know, find your way." And I was like, hey, "You should. Have, that's brilliant." And, and I think my success was, without question, that, you know, that's the goal. One bloke's going to tell me this is the way to get there, one bloke's going to tell me this is the way to get there, and all of them are going to think they're right, and all of them are going to tell you why the other guy's wrong, but the goal's the same. So I don't believe what everyone tells you, you find what's right for you, and people tell you you can't do it, you can, you can do anything. And, uh, you know, I want to race it, my, I should never, ever, ever have won. I want it again, you know. So it's uh, yeah. I think that's the the key to my success was uh, well, the the one thing I take away is you know stubbornness and and I'm a problem solver. A goal is a dream with a plan. Mm -hmm. Didn't you say that? Yeah, a goal is a dream with a plan. Yeah, yeah. it's true, without question. <laughs> so I will, I'll let you go now. Thank you. It's been a, it's been it's been an honor. Oh, cheers! My daughter's been running around in the background. Yeah, really right. She's yeah, yeah. behaving really good. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah you should be proud. I am. I'm Very sure you proud. are. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks a lot, man. Too easy.
Who is enjoy Tanyapura? I will. Thanks. So don't forget to check out the webpage at huskypodcast.com where you will find more links and information about Baka and about Tanyapura. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.